In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a super exciting episode for you. We will start off by talking about uh, Donald Trump's attempts to, you know, hold on to power combined with um, his flagrant violations of the Presidential Records Act and why that actually matters, even though it seems like it might not. You might Mm -hmm. not be interested, but it really does matter. Um, And then we will move on to talking about uh, poverty in the United States, specifically trying to tackle the question uh, often posed by conservatives, uh, does government welfare actually do more harm than good? Um, and finally, we will be talking about mental health treatment and stigma in the U.S. and, you know, in in, in an effort to support, uh, you know, people seeking mental health treatment and to break down the stigma and barriers that prevent people from getting treatment. Absolutely. I could not be more excited about tonight's docket. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I I think it's funny how every single time we introduce the episode as, oh, this is a really exciting one. This is a really exciting <laughs> one. You know, as opposed to last week, which was a super boring one. This is a super exciting one. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that we're going to really have an interesting discussion today, especially about poverty. Yeah, because I found cool. some super interesting research about it that I want to break down some kind of some kind of contradictory research as well. Mm, interesting. And I definitely I definitely want to want to be able to break it down for you all. Um, also, I'm still riding high from our awesome interview with yes. It's Another Sunday podcast with uh, with Jerry and Debbie. Yeah, me too. That was such a fun experience. Um, if you haven't listened to the interview yet, uh, head on over to It's Another Sunday podcast. Uh, they're on Spotify and 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 everywhere. Um, and give it a listen. Give their other shows a listen. It's a great podcast. They're doing great things, trying to promote people. Um, and we had a really great time on their show. Yeah, they're super nice, super complimentary, mm-hmm. and you know they're they're just they're just fun people. They're just fun yeah, people. Yeah, they got out a really with. great like conversational interview style they're like just like you know really fun to to get to collaborate with yeah so again that's it's another sunday podcast uh be sure to check them out yeah you know what else we should check out michael what the COVID numbers great idea so worldwide at this point we've broken the 400 million mark right so we've we've reached 403 million cases which is up from 385 million cases last week so that's 18 million new cases in a week or about 2.57 million new cases per day which is down 22 percent from 3.3 million new cases per day the week before um in terms of death, we've hit 5.79 million deaths, which is up from 5.71 million the week before. So that's about 80,000 new deaths in a week, or about 11,000 deaths per day, up 10% from 10,000 deaths per day the prior week. Uh, in terms of vaccination, uh, 63.2% of the world's population has at least one dose of the vaccine, which is up from 62.8% last week. So 
just another 0.4% increase. Um, those like those worldwide uh, vaccination numbers have been really sad and frustrating to me. It's just, it's we seem to be on such an uphill battle to get people even their first dose. And at this point, you need three doses for it to really matter. So it's like, that's really demoralizing. In, in the U.S. at this point, we've hit 78.7 million cases, which is up from 76.6 million last week. So that's 2.1 million new cases in a week, or about 300,000 cases a day, which is down 25% from 400,000 cases per day the week before. Um, in terms of death, we've hit 934,000 deaths, which is up from 916,000 last week. So that's 18,000 new deaths, or about 2,600 deaths per day, um, which is down 4% from 2,700 deaths from the prior week. And in terms of vaccination, we have hit 76% of the U.S. population with one dose of the vaccine, mm. which is up 1% from last week. And, I mean, that's an exciting number. Yeah. Getting 76% of the people in the U.S. to do anything is pretty remarkable. Yeah. That being said, 64% have two doses, which is totally flat from last week, and 27% have a booster, which is also flat from last week. Yeah. Although I I do think it's important to take a look at that first number for mm -hmm. a second because because of the internet, it feels like the anti-vax populace is mm -hmm. bigger than it is. Because they're feels, super loud. Well, they're super loud, right? They're super loud, and they have this weird tendency to like excommunicate any Republican that so much as suggests the possibility that a vaccine might not have a microchip that's going to make you gay. <laughs> yeah. But, but think about that number. 76%. That is a huge proportion of the country. So... I think that we should just take a second and realize that the whole anti-vax conspiracy bullshit is a very tiny proportion of the country. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great call out. I mean, vaccine hesitancy is like more widespread, but as we've seen as we've reviewed in like previous discussions of vaccine vaccine polling and vaccine hesitancy, like you can overcome the barrier of someone who's just hesitant pretty easily with like fairly minor incentives to go get the vaccine. It doesn't take too much to get someone who's just like mm, questioning to actually go get the vaccine. Yeah. Also, another note that I want to make real quick. There's been a lot of people that have been completely misunderstanding a piece of information that has been, I mean, that we've always known, but like seems to be getting more traction. And that's the idea that more and more, the CDC is impressing upon the fact that cloth masks aren't as effective. Mm -hmm. Now, that's something oh, that's always yeah, that been true. Yeah, that piece of information has totally been like like blown up everywhere. Yeah, but that's kind of that's always <laughs> been true, though. I, yeah. I don't. I, I mean, some people are acting like, oh, well, the CDC said they were effective, and now they're saying masks aren't effective, and chaos and anarchy, and they're just making shit yeah. up as they go along. No, that's. They were always there was always a hierarchy of masks. We talked about it on the show, like at yeah. the start of the pandemic. Yeah. We talked about on the show 
about the how not all masks are created equally. But mm. I think it's an it's also important to note that it's not that cloth masks are completely ineffective, it's that they're not as effective. Wearing a cloth mask is better than wearing nothing. But yeah. As long as it doesn't give you a false sense of security yeah, that you can yeah. go around spitting on people. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. So like when uh, when Marjorie Taylor's Jewish Space Lasers Green was on Alex Jones recently, yes, imagine Marjorie Taylor Green and Alex Jones in the same vicinity. <laughs> it's like that, that created the first ever in the universe example of stupidity fusion yeah. where the sum of stupidity was greater than the parts of the stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a scientific phenomenon that scientists are still trying to understand. Um, so <laughs> when she said like very passionately vaccines don't work, masks don't work. And we know that now it might surprise you to know that she's wrong. Yeah. She's just big wrong. surprise. Big surprise. By the way, can I just say, how good we are at getting at saying uh, Marjorie Taylor Jewish Space Lasers Green these yeah. days. Like that's taken a lot of practice. It did that's take a, a lot long of practice. Name. I I yeah. did miss it a few times there, but yeah, we we have <laughs> we have gotten we have gotten a lot better at it. It yeah. doesn't roll off the tongue, but like you gotta give her credit for the <laughs> it, the Jewish Space Lasers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if people have a title. Yeah, you should use it. You, you have refer to, you to have the to, Queen of England as Her Majesty. Exactly, exactly. exactly. It's exactly. an honorific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> switching gears from pandemics and Marjorie Taylor drew a space lasers green, um, we are talking about the Presidential Records Act. Yeah. Um, Speaking of somebody with a with a a title. <laughs> Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Not President Donald Trump uh, is is the reason we're talking about this, and we're, and we're talking about it um, for a couple things, for a couple reasons. First of all, I would be the first to admit it's hard to get jazzed yeah. over something called the Presidential Records Act. Yeah, even you know, even in the face of. Donald Trump stealing 15 boxes of records that belong to the American people and taking them to Mar-a-Lago um, like in violation of this federal law. Um, you might be asking like, well, first of all, what the heck is that law? Why does it matter? Why should we care about this? Um, and importantly, is this the only time Donald Trump has violated it? <laughs> As you have to ask about every law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it definitely it definitely sounds like one of those laws that as you say it, I feel like you fall asleep a little bit. <laughs> like the presidential records. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. Like the three most boring words in combination ever. <laughs> but it's uh, I, really important. Yeah, it is really important. And I think we also should give an update on what we're learning about all of the attempts by Donald Trump to overturn the uh, 2020 election. Yeah. And the reason why we haven't talked about it as much on the pod is because we really do prefer to be more policy focused. Mm -hmm. And this isn't necessarily policy focused. It's more just one idiot's delusions focused. Yeah. But, <laughs> but when that, that idiot is the president of the United when States, when that idiot is the former president of the United States, and when that idiot has the hearts and minds of like um, almost a third of the country, about a third, a yeah. little over a third of the country, 
we should probably take a second and be like, what are these idiots delusions? And also, what are some of the things that he actually did in order to try to stay in office? And that yeah. and that can kind of add on to what are some of the ways in which he hid some of the more nefarious things that he did throughout his presidency and also towards the end of his presidency. Mm-hmm. So uh, New York Mag actually did a really good breakdown of the overall timeline of everything that led up to, to, to January 6th and all of the things that Trump tried to do in order to stay in office based on what has now been revealed by the, uh, the actual commission in the House of Representatives to investigate the final days of the Trump presidency. And the, the, the argument that this article makes is that Trump was actually laying the groundwork for this as early as 2016. So let's not forget that in 2016, because Trump could not handle the fact that he lost the popular vote, he mm-hmm. repeatedly claimed that millions of people voted illegally in 2016. He, at one point, he was on an interview with Meet the Press, and he claimed that California had even admitted that it had a million illegal votes, which it did not because it did not. Um, <laughs> it didn't admit that because that didn't happen. It's a complete Trump fabrication. But if you keep saying it over and over again, eventually people that really like you and can't imagine how could anybody not like this big orange guy that I've fallen in love with, mm-hmm. you know, anybody that doesn't like this guy, it, it must be fake. All right. It must to be, be fair. fair. When you describe the big orange guy I've fallen in love with, you know, that could apply to Donald Trump or a character from Sesame Street. So yeah. it's it understandable why they're lovable, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these similar tactics were actually brought up again in the 2018 midterms. Um, there were there were claims that there were going to be voting irregularities. Um, there were actually four specific contests in California that um, at the time, uh, House leaders uh, Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy. Remember Paul Ryan? Remember that guy? Oh, man, the good old days. The good old days. <laughs> the good old days. Um, so they had actually kind of kind of pounced on these specific four contests and, and were making a claim that, uh, like, in early votes— they had they had an early lead, but then when mail-ins came, there was a, you know, there was a shift towards the Democrat. Sound familiar? <laughs> so they were actually laying the groundwork for the idea of utilizing the red mirage, way early back in in 2018. Mm-hmm. So then that brings us to 2020, where remember Trump was laying all of this groundwork. Because he knew that the red mirage was going to happen. We talked yeah. about how it was going to happen. Yeah. yeah. But he knew it was going to happen. And he was re- laying the groundwork by trying to tell everybody that basically that mail-in ballots are completely unreliable, that they are, you know, it, they're very easy, easily um, frauded. Yep. And we, we actually talked about that and we laid out. At, at the time that there is absolutely no evidence that that is true. Yep. And we laid out the fact that the red mirage was absolutely going to happen because a lot of those mail-in ballots are going to be counted later in the, later in the night yeah. or later and in note the week. That, note that he, 
intentionally got in front of that narrative by yeah. say like by you know describing a fact that we're going to see a red mirage or i think he would refer well to he it didn't like call it that shift or he something. didn't call yeah, it yeah exactly <laughs> as like we're going to see this avalanche of of democratic ballots later on and that is evidence of fraud so he's able to like take that fact piece and say that means fraud even yeah. though even though there was no actual evidence for that. So it's actually like, you know, to your point, laying the groundwork for being able to say everything you're seeing is totally factual and totally, you know, fraudulent. Yeah. And let's also not forget, on election night, he claimed victory prematurely. Yep. Yep. At around uh, 8 a.m., he said, quote, as far as I'm concerned, we've already won it, after they were still counting the ballots. And then let's not forget about all of those legal challenges. And we've we've talked mm -hmm. about this like a thousand times. Uh, yep. I'm not going to go over it too much, but remember there were 62 federal and state lawsuits, and they lost 61 of them. Mm -hmm. And in a yep. lot of them, when the lawyers were asked point blank, "Are you alleging fraud?" they said no. Now, yeah. in the court of public opinion, when they were going on Fox News, they were saying, "Yeah, totally fraud." But in the court of public in 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 the in the court of law, when they were actually under oath and they were asked, "Are you alleging fraud?" they would say no, because there are actually legal consequences to, yeah. <laughs> to, to lying about that. Um, and then the 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 one that they won was basically uh, there was a procedural thing in Pennsylvania involving a a small number of ballots where there were mm -hmm. some technical errors, and yep. it it didn't change the it didn't change the results whatsoever. And it couldn't have. And they couldn't have. And they couldn't right. have. And then uh, after it had already been declared that Biden was the victor, uh, Trump tried to enlist a bunch of Republican state legislators mm -hmm. to basically force the, uh, the, electoral, the, the electors by the Electoral College to force the legislators to send, to send um, Trump electors yeah. instead of the the legitimate electors uh in states and this happened in states like uh pennsylvania and michigan both mm -hmm. of which have republican controlled legislators leg legislatures and that didn't work and one of the craziest things that apparently he was considering which this is something that's come out recently is that he considered using the military to seize voting machines Mm -hmm. like the military he was actually trying to he, he was he was looking into avenues for the department of justice the the pentagon the department of homeland security and even some state agencies to seize voting machines in order to investigate fraudulent claims of well fraud <laughs> yeah um and <laughs> william barr had to be like no yeah, William Barr was the good guy, or yep. at least the not quite as shit guy in this in this in this whole thing. Um, and another thing, another crazy thing. The main person, the, the person that was instrumental in talking Trump out of this was Rudy Giuliani. Mm. He was too crazy for Rudy Giuliani. The guy whose brains were leaky, leaking out of his head during a press conference. <laughs> and, and what's funny is he said, like, he said that if you do this, 
you'll probably be impeached again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was like, hold my beer. <laughs> like, hold my Diet Coke. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I, I think we already know about the time that Trump tried to pressure Georgian officials to, quote, find 11,000 votes. Yep. Um, we don't need to go too much into that, but that right, that right there is insane. Um, and then he urged the department of justice to declare that the election was corrupt. Mm -hmm. So, um, he, even though like his own administration, uh, had found that it was the most secure election in like U S history. Yeah. Um, so he was working with acting assistant attorney general Jeffrey Clark to try to he, they drafted a letter to, to Republican officials in Georgia claiming that the DOJ was, quote, investigating various irregularities in the 2020 election and urged them to have a special legislative session to investigate the, the, the voter fraud claims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And. None of the letters were ended up being sent out because the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, said no. And acting deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue, refused to go along saying, quote, there is no chance I would sign this letter or anything remotely like this. Hmm. And um, and there, there were actually instances where Rosen specifically threatened to resign if if trump attempted to do this there was uh um there was apparently a phone call on december 27th where rosen said quote understand the dog can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election it doesn't work that way Mm -hmm. that was according to uh donahue's notes on the call and trump's response was i don't expect you to do that just to say that the election was corrupt, leave the rest to me and the Republican mm. congressman. Mm. So, <laughs> so this failed. This eventually uh, yeah. failed because because again he he threatened to resign if they if they pursued this further. Um, then of course we know about all of Trump's attempts to to get Pence to reject the electoral votes on January sixth which he does not have the authority to do again, a basic misunderstanding of how things work. Yeah. And, and did you see recently that Pence came out and straight up was like, yeah, the president is wrong. Mm -hmm. I did not have the authority to do this. That is the most spine Mike Pence has ever had. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's strength is the equivalent of like, like a, like a tower of Jenga when it's just all the crossing pieces in the center. Yeah. Like that's, that's how strong that spine is. And it's still the strongest spine Mike Pence has ever had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, let's also not forget all of the, uh, all the, uh, people in Congress that Trump called to try to block the certification. I yep. mean, if this isn't illegal, it fucking should be. Yeah. And, and that's all prior to, inciting a yeah, violent mob this is before to to... <laughs> this is all before january 6th i mean yeah. i feel like we we've, we've, we've talked about january 6th plenty on this yep. pod we yep. i don't think we need to bring that up again but like this was before january 6th all yeah. right 
The whole calling an attorney general of another state saying, find me 11,000 votes, like pressuring the Justice Department. Yeah. To to falsely like like to falsely pretend that there is a uh, that there is an investigation into irregularities that do not exist. Yeah. In order to get um, state legislatures to to have a, a an emergency session to to halt the certification of their electoral votes, if this is not illegal, it should be. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think like so. I want to make a couple points, and I'm and that the second point is going to bring it back to the Presidential Records Act. So the first point I want to make is that our saving grace and also probably our biggest liability in this whole thing is that these methods didn't work. Yeah. Right? Thank God none of these strategies were successful. If they were, we would be in in an incredibly worse off position. I, I do not, I cannot imagine a like sustained democratic democratic republic rule of law after that yeah so thank goodness they didn't work but at the same time just because they didn't work didn't mean that they couldn't have worked and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to solve them and prevent them from the future and to nathan's point get out in front of them and make them make strategies like this and other strategies to corrupt our elections illegal impeachable like i think that's critical it's so easy to like breathe a sigh of relief and say thank goodness that's in the rearview mirror um but like we have to try to address the root cause of these strategies of this um of these problems and like try to carve out legislation to make this kind of behavior not just a violation of norms but actually a violation of the law yeah like, and in a world that made sense, this shit would be treasonous. Yeah. It, you know, it is. <laughs> yeah. It is attempting to overthrow the government by means that are non-military. Yeah. And then by, uh, and, and some that were military, <laughs> you yeah. know, even some yeah, that were yeah, military. Yeah. yeah. Like this in a world that made sense, this shit would be treasonous and Trump would be in prison right now. Yes. I think that's right. And so that brings me to my second point, which connects all of this back to the presidential records act which is that it is also totally possible in addition to, you know, it, it, we're not far from a world where some of these things could have worked. We're not far from a world where some of these things wouldn't have been leaked out of the Trump administration. Mm. Right. Yeah. We're not far from a world where like we wouldn't actually be aware of a lot of these phone calls and strategies because people wouldn't have shared them. Right. And in that world where we weren't, where people weren't, you know, leaking from the Trump administration, the Presidential Records Act becomes really fucking important for a few reasons. One, because it becomes really important to the January 6th investigation to that committee and, and any other committee that like may have been formed or could be formed in the future to try to address, to try to understand and and fi fact find and legislate about these things, right? The facts of, of what Trump did and how and why are important to studying the question and solving the problem, right? And, and that second thing is like, 
if these if these if this evidence had not been leaked it is critical to at some point fixing our you know republic that we do have some kind of record of these things for the historical record for the legislative record down the road and so that like kind of brings us back to why it's even like why it's even on our agenda to talk about like presidential record keeping because the critical part of it is that you know and the whole reason it was designed is to um is to affirm the completeness and the authenticity of presidential records so that we know actually what happened right it's like it is the um it is critical to the transparency of an administration to understanding what happened and to pretend, and to doing something about it right if like like you know so the presidential records act was like created uh during like the very end days of the nixon administration now it wasn't enacted until after that but like an early version of it was like nixon specific to prevent him from destroying uh records related to watergate um and i think that's telling right that we had a, a president prior to donald trump probably our most corrupt president who specifically had to be legislated to you know prevent him from erasing the indiscretions of his presidency because those records belong to us, right? The records of what a president does when he's acting in our service belong to us. You know, we deserve to be able to study them, understand them, learn from them, and at some point in the future, like, define that history and, you know, understand what form it should take in, in terms of governing the future, right? And that becomes really important when we think about the Donald Trump presidency, because, you know, you know, if he had won a second term, the records would be important to the historical record, right? It'd be important to the past, understanding his presidency, all that stuff. But they're way more important now because he's a one-term president, which means he can run again, which means we have to be able to understand, we have to be able to review, or at least Congress has to be able to review these records, um, you know, in, in the course of their investigations um, into, like, all of the kinds of, you know, misdeeds that he did as president, especially in those final days that Nathan was describing. Um, so just basically, the Presidential Records Act is... Um, basically what it does is, is govern... It, it changed the legal ownership of records, official records of the president from the president personally himself to the public. So it established a new statutory structure for, uh, for managing those records and basically said specifically like all of these records are the property of the government. They prevent the president from um, destroying records without uh, the written authorization of the, the National Archivist. They, they also prevent that for the vice president. Um, it also places responsibility for maintaining and the custody of those records on the presidential administration. Um, 
uh, it also, you know, establishes, it does establish processes for, for getting records, you know, you know, protected under privilege, uh, but only for a certain amount of time. And there are processes for Congress and the courts to unseal those records uh, in order to be able to study themselves or make them available to the public. Um, and unsurprisingly, you know, Trump trying to obscure what happened leading up to January 6th, Trump taking, stealing 15 boxes of the U.S. public's uh, owned records down to Mar-a-Lago that the, the National Archives had to go recover, um, are not the only examples of him um, violating the Presidential Records Act, right? Apparently, according to his um, people with, from within his administration, um, he had a habit of just tearing up documents, right? Pretty much indiscriminately. Any document, any like paper, when he was, and he was avidly a user of paper, right? Everything had to be paper. Um, in, like they would print out like online articles and like, like video headlines and all this crap for him to, for him to have in paper. And he would tear everything up, right? To the point where the House Select Committee investigating January 6th um, received a number of records where uh, the, either the National Archives or Trump staff had to reassemble destroyed records uh, with tape. Right. So like it, it was a common practice for Trump to just leave a litter of, of torn up records and trash in his wake. And his staff would, as best to, to, to the degree that they could, assemble these missing or assemble these destroyed records in order just to comply with the basics of the law. Right? So basically he is exactly I mean, the type of guy that that leaves shit all over the place for other people to clean up. <laughs> Like yeah. that, that crumples up paper that, I mean, like that's exactly the type of person I pictured him being. Yeah. <laughs> so just the idea of the, the Oval Office, um, whenever he would be done in there, just being covered <laughs> with yeah. ripped up papers and torn up, like, yeah. And, it, and, and so and apparently it, it's exactly what you thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and his staff estimates that there are hundreds of, if not thousands of records that were destroyed and they were not able to reassemble. Right. And again, those records can only be legally be destroyed with the written, um, consent of the national archivist. There is a process for this. And yet like they, they also had, um, these like would frequently put documents in these bird ba burn bags that would be destroyed without review by the national archivist. Um, it, it's, it's funny cause to me, it sounds like someone trying to cover their tracks. Like it sounds like a, like a, like a mob boss rather than like a president because like his habit is anything he reads then gets torn up because, you yeah. know, he doesn't want other people's other people to read it. Well, but then we also have to remember that it's Trump. So maybe he yeah. just, he, he read the first two words and he was like, too many big words and Too then hard. threw it away. <laughs> this made me feel dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's just like the records part, which is like obviously, um, obviously important, but also like Trump's tweets themselves constitute presidential records, 
which he would then delete. Right. And so like, you know, luckily in the case of like electronic communication like that, you can go in and, and retrieve it from yeah, those are already our Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Thank goodness. But like his total disregard for the fact that he is a public servant and that he owes it to all of us to abide by the law and, um, like maintain his records. Um, and it's not even like it's his job. It's just don't destroy shit. Yeah. Um, and so it's like actively been a challenge for the January 6th commission. Um, as apparently they've got, there are certain documents related to Trump trying to pressure Mike Pence that, um, that they know existed at some point because there's like reference to them, but they no longer exist because they had been shredded by the time they were requested by the committee and other documents, over 700 pages of documents delivered to the committee, um, you know, had, had been torn up and then reconstructed by the national archives. Yeah. I think the Um, point here that we want to impress upon you is that all of the shit that I, that I read to you earlier, which again, uh, New York mag did a great breakdown. Most of the information that I got when I was talking earlier came from them. Definitely, definitely, uh, recommend going and reading the whole article. All of that shit that we talked about, the nefarious shit that Trump did to hold on to power. That is only, those are only the things that we know. Those are only the things that either they thought, well, this is probably not bad enough to, to, to warrant needing to destroy the record or, you know, Mm -hmm. to do a good job of destroying the record. There could be a bunch of other shit that he did that we're just never going to know because all the records were deleted. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important because he could be our president again. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment. Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually every week? Well, Michael, we do Good Actually every week because the world sucks. Like, sometimes it feels like it really sucks. And then you look around Mm -hmm. and you just see more suckiness. It's sucky. But every Mm -hmm. now and then you look really, really hard and you realize, hey, that's a good thing over there. Holy shit, there's another good thing over there. Oh my God, there's a good thing right in front of me. And eventually you realize good actually is all around us. Mm. So Michael, absolutely. what is our good actually for this week? Well, it's funny that you, you know, put good actually, you described it that way. Cause it, it's not unlike the experience of our little heroes in our good actually this week where they're looking over there and you're looking over here and they're seeing crap. And so they do something about it and bam, something good happens. So is it like, is it like kids? It's like kids are, kids are like cleaning things up. Even littler than that. Fetuses? (laughs) Embryos? Well, not as young. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a Swedish city just south of Stockholm. I would pronounce the name, but it's got a lot of umlauts and things that I don't (laughs) quite get how they work. Um, That is, (laughs) that is implementing a new program which might be the coolest, like one of the coolest things I've ever seen. 
So their goal is to clean up the streets of this Swedish city. Specifically, they've got a cigarette butt problem. People smoke, they throw their cigarette butts on the ground, and it is, you know, the city's getting full of cigarette butts, it's getting dirty, all that stuff. The problem is paying people to go around and clean up cigarette butts is expensive, it's challenging, and honestly, that's a shitty job. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Sweden, you know? They treat yeah. they treat their people pretty well. Exactly. They don't want people to have that job. So this job is perfect for an animal which has a level of critical reasoning equal to that of a seven-year-old human. <laughs> um, and that is the crow. So this town in Sweden is training crows to clean up its streets, right? The crows, they go, they fly, they pick up a cigarette butt, they bring it and deposit it in this little thing, and it gives them a treat. And so they're literally putting the crows to work, and they specify, because this is Sweden, that the wild birds take part on a voluntary basis. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, They train crows to pick up these cigarette butts and then throw them away, which will reduce the cost of cigarette butt cleanup in the city by 75%. Literally, I know, you'd think it would go to 100%, but the yeah. t- cost of the treats. Yeah, cost um, of the treats. <laughs> but I think that's amazing. So so it's literally, it's a, it's a feast for crows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. And like, cigarette butts are a huge problem. In Sweden, a billion cigarette butts are tossed on the street each year. They make up 62% of the country's litter. Um, in the world, 4.5 trillion butts are tossed out every year. Um, and they can take up to 10 years to decompose. So, like, throwing these away is really important. Mm-hmm. And these little crows are getting paid their little wage to go out and clean the streets. <laughs> that is adorable and wonderful. <laughs> it is. It is. So that's good, actually. So for our next segment, we are talking about poverty. Um, specifically, we're trying to address an argument um, that you know we often hear from Republicans and conservatives that really government welfare kind of does more harm than good. That in fact, when you uh, provide benefits from the government uh, to the poor, they end up staying in poverty longer it makes poverty worse, and ultimately, it's actually worse than not providing those benefits or if those benefits came from other sources. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So as we like to do on this show, we're going to start out by trying to steel man the argument mm-hmm. because I think that on its face, you can make a pretty compelling steel man for mm-hmm. this particular argument and i think it is really easy for people to be fooled by that steel man so right off the bat and i'm actually i'm actually going to put this as one of the links for one of the sources in our um in our uh uh in the, the 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 source notes that you can find on our patreon when you google effects of welfare on poverty the first result that comes up is a study by Harvard and the, what it shows, like what, what, what the Google machine shows 
in bold is, quote, welfare does not reduce poverty. It may actually increase it. Huh. Interesting. Just so let's actually, let's actually let's <laughs> actually look. Yeah. Let's just run with that. Yeah. So let's actually look at the study that um, th- this Harvard study that they're referring to. And the, the big question is, is there evidence that welfare increases poverty? Yeah. And the answer is yes, but not absolute evidence. And mm-hmm. it's more complicated than that. So yeah. this, the particular study, it was, uh, it was carried out by um, uh, George J. Borges of Harvard University. And the, the way that they did this was they were specifically looking at the immigrant population. Yeah, it's and a the, super creative study, honestly. I was really impressed. Oh, it is. It is a very creative study, um, specifically focused on the immigrant population. Now, the reason why they focus on the immigrant population is because in the 90s, there was a Welfare Reform Act that was passed that basically made it so that certain immigrants would no longer be able to receive certain welfare benefits, at least federally. Now, what's nice is that there are some states that continue giving more generous benefits, more democratic states, and there are some states, more red states, that don't have as many benefits. So the idea behind the study was you you look at the difference in poverty rates and in the and in, in the average annual income of these immigrants you compare it to prior to the welfare reform you look at it after the welfare reform and not only that but you compare it to other states you, you compare states with more generous welfare to states with less generous welfare all right so what this particular study found was that in a lot of these cases, the average annual income actually ended up increasing a little bit in states with less generous welfare, right? With less generous welfare programs. So we're talking about um, temporary assistance for families. We're talking about food benefits. We're talking about Medicaid, all right? We're talking about Social Security, all right? And the logic behind this, which again, this is one of those things where on the surface, it makes sense. The logic behind this was if a family is no longer receiving certain benefits, especially in one of these immigrant families, the plan then is, well, okay, if I'm not getting these benefits, I'm going to need to work more because if I don't work more, then I can't support my family. Mm -hmm. And if I work more, that means I'm making more money. The way that we measure poverty is based on annual income. All right. So currently in the United States, um, the poverty rate is defined as 28,166 for a two adult, two-child family renting in an average cost community in 2018. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that's 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 the threshold. That's that's Which, what we're defining. Can we just pause on how low that is? That is that very is a low. Four person family yeah. renting a place for under thirty thousand dollars a year yeah. in total family income. Yeah. So this study did find that um that a lot of these that, that in states with less generous welfare that a lot of these people were actually working more and thus increasing their annual income and mm-hmm. thus in some cases pulling them out of poverty. Yeah. Now if you look at that if I were a Republican and I were using that data I could very easily make the argument look people don't want to be dependent on the government, all right? Mm-hmm. When people are dependent on the government, you are holding them back from their potential. They have the potential to be self-sufficient. They have the potential to make the money themselves. And if we just released them, released that safety net and allowed them to just go for it, that more of them would succeed and thus less of them would be in poverty. Yeah. Which is like the argument that Republicans typically make. Um, so like independent.org, which is a conservative uh, institute, they, they had a piece on this particular topic and they wrote that um, anti-poverty programs often undermine people's work ethic by not requiring them to work in exchange for their payments. Uh, these and other perverse incentives had contributed to a decline in effort among able-bodied adults. The, the idea being, if you remove, similar to like, similar to like the, uh, the conversation we had on like safe injection sites a little bit, a, a couple of episodes ago, it's like if you remove the negative consequences, insulate people from, from the negative outcomes of their decisions, like, you know, all kinds of decisions that might affect someone's lifetime earnings, um, then they will make worse decisions like and and they will be more dependent and they will work less and work less hard and ultimately you will create a system that um in the words of of Jeffrey Dorfman who writing for Forbes that um fails to prepare people to take care of themselves makes poor people more financially fragile and creates incentives to remain on welfare forever yeah that's the argument so here's why it's wrong. Um, first off, I just want to focus on this specific study before we kind of broaden everything. Let's mm-hmm. go ahead and assume that pretty much everything in this study perfectly encapsulates the reality. Yep. The study itself actually admits that it is only focused on the poverty rate. And it is very possible that there are other things such as quality of life that could be negatively impacted by removing these welfare programs. To give you an example, I used to be an adjunct instructor. All right. I now teach full time, but I used to be an adjunct instructor. Now I had a full time schedule as an adjunct instructor, but because it wasn't full time with one university or one college, I was being paid significantly less and I was getting no benefits whatsoever. So when I was working as an adjunct, theoretically, I could have been making as much money as I am now. All right. As an adjunct teaching on average five classes per semester, 
I was making approximately $28,000 a year, which is really low, but that's what I was making. In theory, I could have been making almost 60, but I would have had to teach 10 classes per semester in order to do that. So if we are going to look at this, we can't just look at the, the raw number of um, poverty. We also need to ask ourselves about overall quality of life. Mm -hmm. And when the slack is picked up in some areas, therefore you don't have to completely dedicate yourself to work 100% and can actually take some time in your life to, you know, to have a, a life outside of work, then that can drastically increase a family and an individual's quality of life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important point. It's an important point to bring up also. This is specifically referring to a time period from the mid-90s to today and not necessarily looking at an overall uh, macro level of the history of welfare programs in the United States and their mm -hmm. effects on poverty. I mean, yep. think about the New Deal. Think about the Great Depression. All of those welfare programs got us out of the Great Depression. Yeah. Make no mistake. That is why we got out of the Great Depression. Because yeah, so of the establishment of Social Security, um, yeah. you know, a, a so living wage. assuming the economic benefit of welfare programs, even though they might not be assuming, the, you know, they, they're only accounting for the dollar benefit to those in poverty as opposed to the economic benefit and growth that happens to the economy because we're investing in, in people. Yeah. And the biggest problem with this study is actually, it's not the study's fault, all right? Because this is more a problem in how poverty is measured. So yes. poverty is measured mostly just by what your income is, mm -hmm. all right? Flat out. And you might think that makes sense, but hold on for a second. Because think about the added value to your income that come from that comes from being a beneficiary of government programs. All yes. right. That comes from the beneficiary from being a beneficiary of social security, food assistance, uh, tax credits for working families. So the Center on Budget Policy and Priorities created a new type of uh, a new type of way of measuring poverty. It's called the Supplemental Poverty Measure. And they calculate, they use this measure in which they take into account the added value to a person's income that comes from those programs and then measures that against what we consider to be the poverty rate. And census data shows that those security programs in 2018 lifted nearly 37 million people above the poverty line, including yeah. 7 million children. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah. Government benefits and tax policies cut the poverty rate from 24% to 12.8% in 2018. And among children, they cut it from 23% to 13.7%. Yeah. And I think that that right there is a much more effective and a much more honest way of measuring poverty. Yeah. 
yeah, let's. I think we should. It's worth considering this, right? Because because the perspective that Republicans espouse um, assumes one thing and and declares another thing. It assumes um, that the comparison is is between welfare and no welfare, which is you know that's a big assumption, right? Like, why isn't the comparison between you know some welfare and other welfare or something like that or some or or um just poverty with or without these you know programs and 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 the other thing that it declares is that welfare itself sh- is bad right it it assumes it it implies that welfare itself is bad even though it is a tangible benefit to all of these families so like it doesn't really make it only makes sense to compare welfare to no welfare if you think welfare is bad and you're trying and your big aim is trying to get rid of it right that means that your big aim is not trying to solve poverty right because that's what the supplemental uh, poverty measure does right it measures our ability to solve poverty right they're saying poverty has to be solved without government involvement and investment yeah Again, that just that declares implicitly that welfare itself, as a as a way to solve poverty, is bad, and we should be trying to get away from it. So anything that that you know makes anything that that solves poverty with welfare is actually somehow cheating or not actually solving poverty. Now we we'll we'll get it. We'll probably sum up this episode by talking about you know poverty and welfare and like kind of a, ma- a larger macro sense. But ultimately, we're trying to help people have better lives, and to the degree that that is only possible via via uh, government programs, they're doing a great fucking job. Mm. Like that same study found that the poverty-reducing importance of government programs has grown a lot. So if you were to look at um, poverty rates before taking government benefits and tax policies into account, poverty um, over the last five decades, so since, like, Johnson declared the war on poverty in, like, 1967, poverty has only fallen from 27% at the time to 25.4% in 2017 that's if you don't take into account government benefits if you do take into account government benefits which is the measurement of how well people are actually living right because it's it's the whole it's the whole picture of of what they're able to use to sustain themselves poverty has fallen from 26 percent in 1967 to 14.4 percent in two in 2017 and it's fallen even further since then so yeah. what this suggests is that, and what, uh, you know, research upon research has found is that um, while those government programs have been wildly effective, non-government solutions to poverty, like wage growth, would only have had contributed like less than 2% improvement mm. over 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that I, another piece of evidence that I think we should also look at is let's compare the United States to other countries. Yeah. 
All right. And let's specifically look at the percentage of public spending of GDP as, as a percentage of GDP versus the rate of poverty. Mm-hmm. So as it stands, as of uh, 2019, France had the largest percentage of social spending publicly as a percentage of GDP at um, 31%. Mm-hmm. All right. Their poverty rate, the poverty rate in France is 8.4%. Wow. In the hmm. United States, which that same number, that same number is uh, 18.7. So we spend mm-hmm. 18.7% of our public GDP on, uh, on welfare. But the United States poverty rate is 18%. Hmm. All right. The next country, yeah. the next That's country. The official poverty rate, right? Yeah, official poverty rate. The next yeah. country, Finland, at 29.1%. Finland, their poverty rate, it's one of the lowest in the world. According, and this is all according to data from the OECD. All right. Finland poverty rate, 6.5%. All right. Mm. The next country, Belgium, they spend 28.9% of their GDP. But their poverty rate, the poverty rate in Belgium, 8.1%. All right. Now, I do want to point out just a few things that I think do make an important point. As it stands, according to these numbers from the OECD, Iceland has the lowest poverty rate. The poverty rate in Iceland is 4.9%. However... They do actually spend a lower portion of their GDP on uh, on on welfare programs. So uh, their percentage is seventeen point four percent. Remember, the United States is eighteen point seven percent. So I think it is also important to note that just throwing money at the problem, mm. non not without strategy, is yeah. not what we're advocating for. Yes. All right. Hundred percent. Because we also have to look at what is it that Iceland has actually done that has, you know, put them in the position that they're in. Well, first off, we have to acknowledge that they have fully socialized medicine, which means that medical debt is not a thing in Iceland. Yeah. Yeah. The number one, like, driver of bankruptcy in the United States. Exactly. And we also have to look at the, the government program that had the biggest effect on cutting on cutting their poverty rate so there was a government program that they had implemented that was specifically designed to um, stimulate a frozen housing market and reduce household income debt Uh, and this is according to the um, borgen project and almost immediately housing debt dropped from 124 percent of the gdp to 77 percent which had a massive impact on cutting poverty. So it was, there, there is still a significant amount of welfare involved in Iceland, but it is more strategic. So the yeah. point that I want to, that I, I want to make is not necessarily that more GDP spending on social programs automatically equals better outcomes. Mm-hmm. But first off, 
the opposite is not true. We know that the yeah. opposite is not true. And we need to be strategic about it. And another thing that I found that was kind of interesting, when you look at when you look at the same numbers from the OECD and you look at total net social spending, so this isn't just government, this is also private, all mm -hmm. right? The United States actually has a pretty high number on this. In fact, we're only seconds to France. So France, it's 31.2%. Um, and the United States is 29.6%. And that's the second... Mm. Uh, that's that's as the second GDP. On, as a percentage of GDP for for total mm -hmm. net spending, which includes public and private, which brings us to another important point. One of the things that Republicans are constantly saying is that charity is good, but government welfare is bad. Well, here we are spending almost as much as France when you add in that private spending, and yet we're not seeing the same outcomes. And the reason why I'm, I think it's important to bring this up is that there's often this there's often this portrait created of Republicans by Democratic voters of Republicans being just a bunch of greedy bastards. And if we're talking yeah. about if we're talking about like elected Republicans, then yeah, I agree with you. But if we're talking about Republican voters, <laughs> but but also true of most Democratic elected Democrats. Yeah, also too, true so. of most. Yeah, exactly. Also true. Of, yeah, Gavel, I, would, you know. <laughs> I would argue. Uh, yeah, I would argue also true of most elected Democrats as well. Um, but when you look at Republican voters, Republican voters actually give more money to charity than Democratic voters. So clearly there mm. is still this desire to be helpful, to help those less needy among Republican voters. But they have been sold this narrative by the propaganda machine at, at Fox News, at OAN, at Newsmax, you know, at uh, the Daily Wire. They've been sold this narrative that the way that you address it is through individual charitable donations rather than larger public initiatives. But the problem with that is that poverty... Yeah is an institutional problem. It's an institutional barrier. Now, if you give money to a homeless person, that's good. You should do that. That is wonderful. However, that's not necessarily going to pull them completely out of poverty. But you create a housing program where you give them a house. You, uh, you create initiatives to allow for job training you make sure that they have the ability yeah. to to um you know to to bathe themselves to have hygiene to have a place to go to the bathroom and you might actually have an impact so you know the 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 proverb that republicans like to say all the time is you know give a man a fish feed him for a day teach a man to fish feed him for a lifetime i would say give a man mm -hmm. a fish you know feed him for a day Teach a man to fish. Okay, great. But teach a man to fish. Make sure he has a proper fishing pole. Make sure that he knows where the best fish can be caught. Mm -hmm. Make sure that he has a home yep. to go back to in order to cook those fish. Make sure he knows how to cook those fish. Make sure that he has the money to afford a stove to cook those fish. And then you feed him for a lifetime.
Yeah. I, I want to echo all of those things. Like, so first of all, you know, I don't think like the deep truth here beyond, you know, the argument that people are better off with government assistance programs, which we, you know, have discussed the, the numbers and the stats on that. The deeper truth here is that, yes, there are problems with our current welfare programs, mm. lots of them. There are many like problematic incentives. There are weird corner cases where people get caught and they can't get out. There are like, you know, all kinds of issues with this, right? And of course, ultimately, we want to be the teacher beneficiaries of the fishermen. Right. Like of the like we want to do what Nathan said and solve the root cause of not knowing how to fish. Right. We want to get people all the way to be able to fish, not just teach them. Right. Because to Nathan's point, like teach a man to fish and then take his fishing pole and he's no yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we want to do all of those things. We want to have deep root cause solutions for all of those things. And to Nathan's point, they come from those root cause come from a lot of different places, criminal justice reform in mm. education um, improvements, solving systemic racism, housing, like affordability, um, you know, in like wage, like combating wage stagnation, including the poorest people in the, econ in the incredible boon of economic growth that we've had in this country over the last few decades, like worker education, all of those things get at the root cause problems, right? And let's just take a moment to, to think about the fact that those are the kind of root cause solutions that, you know, Republicans would call for, right? Like I was reviewing, like trying to like find arguments for this steel man reviewing like Cato Institute stuff, which is a libertarian think tank. And they called for those kinds of solutions. And yet we just had every single Senate Republican vote against the Build Back Better plan, which would have invested yeah. billions of dollars in worker training and in, in like getting to these like good jobs, root cause solutions that we're talking about. So like, it's not, <laughs> yes, Democrats can hold us back in a lot of ways, but they're not the big barrier here, right? And it's hypocrisy to say social safety net programs don't work. We have to focus on root cause solutions, but we're not going to pass social net programs or root cause solutions. Yeah. And the other thing is, to Nathan's point, we can't let our fisher people starve to death as they wait to be good enough at fishing to feed themselves. And I think that is the key. We have to be able to do both things where we solve these root cause problems. We get to these systemic solutions. Um, but while it takes time to do that, because it's not going to happen today, it might happen, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow, it might happen next month, next year, next administration. We've got to make sure people aren't freezing to death, starving to death, getting sick without medicine, and overall aren't constantly facing disaster as we try to drive these root cause solutions, which take decades to form and implement. You know, we have to solve the root cause to poverty, but ultimately the goal is to solve the negative outcomes of poverty. The most sustainable way to do it is to solve the problems root and stem. But we have to keep people alive while we do it.
Okay, so now it's time for our favorite segment, Ass Hat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our Ass Hat this week? Well, Michael, we have a newcomer, but I hope that doesn't mean that you're going to underestimate him because this is a heavyweight. <laughs> and I very a year's I actually, worth of ass hatting in all in one week, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I very purposely did not send this article to Michael because I, I want to hear his reaction to this guy in real time. <laughs> it's Jason Whitlock. Jason Whitlock, come on down, bro. I have really never heard of this guy. It's probably no for the better. This is. Yeah. It's probably for the better. <laughs> I feel blessed. Yeah. So uh, Jason Whitlock was on one of our one of our favorite asshats, uh, Tucker Carlson's show. Oh, great. Um, Asshatception. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he had some things to say about a little over 50% of the population. Mm. Women. Whoa. So he said, quote, I'm probably a sexist pig, so I can care less if I'm called that, but the patriarchy is a good thing. It is what God intended. Men are supposed to lead. Men are supposed to be out in front, taking risks. We are responsible. I have some ministers on my show every Wednesday, and we talk about it all the time. Again, this is if you have a biblical worldview. Oh, fuck. Jesus Christ. No, no, no. My heart rate's like 100 right now. I'm just sitting here seething. Oh, my God. I hate this guy so much already. <laughs> but wait. <laughs> so um, at one point, he was doing an impression of God, which, by the way, I thought was like against one of the commandments. Um, he's, doing, he's doing an impression of God talking to Adam and Eve. And he was specifically referring to Eve telling Adam to, to, to eat the apple or whatever. And he was specifically saying, quote, this is lunacy out of her role completely. I am sorry if that paints me as a sexist pig, but that's what I believe. Like basically God saying to Adam, it's lunacy that you're listening to Eve. At one point he said, quote, why are you laying down? Why are you pretending Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, that they can save us? Oh my God! What the fuck? What the fuck? Jesus! Why is Tucker Carlson have this guy on? Well, I mean, <laughs> oh my God! Well, so Tucker Carlson responded, and and this was a response to the whole that that paints me as a sexist pig. He responded to that saying, "quote I mean, that is just an epithet to make you quiet." You know, the the sexist pig thing. After this guy already said, "I'm a sexist pig," and patriarchy is good. Oh, and my then he God. said. And then Carlson said, quote, why are you not allowed to have that opinion? Why is it so controversial? It was the opinion of every society, like from the beginning of time until about 20 minutes ago. Oh, my God. Why aren't you, ha why aren't you allowed to have the opinion that women are inferior and should just, you know, submit to men on everything that they shouldn't be leadership roles and tucker carlson's argument is an argument from tradition yeah. you know the reason why you aren't allowed to have that opinion or the reason why if you have that opinion everybody's gonna think you're a fucking piece of shit is because yeah. this is shit that we already figured out was bad you know it's the same reason why you're no longer allowed to think that slaving black enslaving black people is a good thing 
It's the same reason why you can't have the opinion that 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 the earth is flat because we figured <laughs> this shit out already. Yeah. Oh my god, that's fucking amazing. Oh my god, this makes me so angry. It's like I cannot believe this people this person is like a, like talking to millions of people on Tucker yeah. Carlson's argument or like audience and like they're probably nodding the fuck along. Like it's yeah. like Oh my God. Could you imagine? I just want to, like, could you imagine, like, being a woman? First of all, that sounds like really fucking horrible in the way we treat women. But just in general, could you imagine, like, being, like, like, some, like, a woman being married to a person who's, like, watching this show and, like, nodding along, like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. And, and, like, looking over and being like, like, okay. Like fuck you, like Jesus yeah. Christ! <laughs> Could you imagine just like, duh. yeah, I'm overwhelmed. And I also want to point out, uh, Jason Whitlock is black, and if this were like sixty or so years ago, the the conversations that people would be having are basically. Like, like, replace the word woman with black in this, yeah. and that's the conversations people were having. Yeah. I mean, replace sexist pig with racist bastard, and those mm-hmm. are the type of conversations people would be having. And then Tucker Carlson has the nerve to be like, well, that's just how it's been, all right? Yeah. Every society has believed this. You could very easily make that same argument about racism. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, fuck Jason Whitlock. <laughs> Seriously. Oh my gosh. He need yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations. Very <laughs> deep and hearty. To Jason Whitlock for being our Ass Hat of, of the, the Week. week. Okay, so for our last segment, we're going to be talking about mental health. Um, Specifically, like, mental health treatment, some stigma around that, and trying to get, you know, past it. Past the stigma around mental health. Um, Because, like, fundamentally, it's health. And just like bodily health, if you ignore a problem, it doesn't go away. It gets worse. Yeah. And another reason why I personally wanted us to talk about this this week is because there were some major tragedies at my own university just this week. In fact, in the last two weeks. So, um, unfortunately, about uh, about a week ago, there was a student that died by suicide on uh on the uh the campus at my my school and just monday like five minutes before i was i was about to teach a class um there was another individual uh according to the emails that they sent out this was not a uh this was not a student or faculty member but there there was a a human being that that also died by suicide right on campus um, from a parking deck, mm-hmm. like, uh, 
jumped off to parking off a parking deck and the two events have really shaken the community i mean and and that's not even addressing the fact that there was a there was a school shooting in our backyard yeah uh in, in a college that's right down the road the road from us in which um in which uh two officers unfortunately also lost their lives so there's been a huge discussion about mental health at my university right now mm-hmm. yeah and i just think that we need to take some time to address the issues with the continued stigmatization yeah. of mental health because there is this society tendency mm-hmm. to think of mental health as being um, a, a a secondary thing or or even a a, a privilege to even consider yeah um, but mental health issues can be just as debilitating as physical health problems and Unfortunately, in, in the worst circumstances, sometimes they can lead to death by suicide. And mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, we want to prevent that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's put some numbers around these things. Cause I think one, so, so one of the, you know, recommendations for destigmatizing mental health is one to talk about it, but two to talk about, to like provide, you know, awareness of the fact that it's not an outlier. You're yeah. not, you know, uh, outside of the norm for having mental health needs, including treatment and therapy. So an estimated 26% of Americans 18 and older, and that's 18 and older, right? There's like a high incidence of mental health um, uh, needs in like the teen uh, teenage group as well. But 26% of Americans 18 and older, which is about one in four people, uh, experiences a diagnosable mental, uh, mental health disorder, uh, in, in, in any given year, approximately nine and a half percent of those people suffer from some kind of depressive illness, including bipolar disorder, uh, and major depression. Um, another 18% of people, uh, have some kind of anxiety disorder. Um, and you know, in 2020, I'm sure in 2020 and 2021, like things got worse, you know, it partly due to the pandemic, partly due to, uh, you know, societal disruptions, which have limited access to mental health treatment. So in 2020, 20.3% of adults received mental health treatment. So let's just call that out that the discrepancy, 26% of people have a mental health, uh, diagnosable mental health disorder, 23 0.3% of adults actually receive treatment, right? At least yeah. 6% there of people, which is tens of millions of people have, have untreated diagnosable mental health issues. And that 23.3 is up from 19.2 the year before. So a full percent, 1% of the population entered mental health treatment in just one year. Yeah. Which, like, honestly, if 26% of the population in any given year experiences a mental health challenge, mental health problem, every single percent <laughs> that, that gets into treatment is a win. Yeah. But, like, it is a growing problem, you know? And as, as uh, you know, people live in more dense areas, this is a study from the CDC, um, the percent of uh, people on mental health medication 
increased. Um, but the percentage of people on who received counseling or therapy decreased. Um, yeah. and, and men and women are much more likely to seek mental health, uh, help than men. So 25.6% of, of women have received mental health treatment in the, in the last year versus 14.6% of men. Yeah. And society really does not incentivize it. I no, mean, it does not. F- for example, and this is, this is insane. So did you know that, uh, the FAA actually, um, has specific rules against, uh, against having pilots with any kind of di- mental health diagnosis or intervention? In most cases, mm. a mental health diagnosis or intervention, meaning therapy, yeah, is considered automatically disqualifying. Oh my gosh! So, but but I just I just I think it's important to note that that's basically like saying if you ever if you've ever broken your leg and you used crutches, that's disqualifying. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that you don't have any pilots with mental health problems. It's that you guarantee all of your pilots lack mental health treatment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you're just incentivizing people to stay silent, and that yeah. only furthers the mental health problems. And yeah. I, do, I do want to address what Michael said about the discrepancy between males and females, because there is this societal idea that when it comes to men— you just got to man up, mm-hmm. all right? If life's getting you down, you just got to man up, that there's something inherently feminine about seeking therapy. And that is just bullshit. Yeah. That is just toxic bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, I mean we, I'm sure that, you know, we, we could have a conversation about this for like an hour about, um, how a lot of what we view as masculinity or femininity is just societally agreed upon yeah. garbage. Mm-hmm. But the fact that people are willing to to basically shoot themselves in the foot, to, yeah, to, to allow themselves to suffer for this misguided image of a machismo is just unfortunate. Yeah. And it is so illogical. <laughs> so I just, I just want to make p- sure that people know that, number one, therapy is not just for crisis mode. All right? Yeah. It's not just, you, you, therapy is not just something that you use if you're in crisis or if you are, you know, if you're weak or, or, mm-hmm. or anything. Therapy is for maintenance. Like, yes, yeah. you use therapy in, 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 a, you know, in a crisis, but... Ideally, you want to prevent that crisis by using it as maintenance. Mm-hmm. It is no different from using crutches if you break your leg, or a yeah. wheelchair if you need to. If you need to, when you it's break eating your, leg. your fucking, it's eating your fucking vegetables. It's not yeah, like it's you like have your, a heart attack and then all vegetables. of a sudden it's like okay, well I guess it's not just hamburgers anymore from here on out. It's like no, no, no. You eat your vegetables from the beginning. And you never have that heart attack in the first place. <laughs> yeah. If you're sick, you take medication. You know, yeah. if you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you're sick, you rest. There's no shame in resting when you're sick. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. All right. Your brain is a part of your body. So mm -hmm. if, 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 if you're able to acknowledge that if you have a huge fever that, you know, you should, you should probably stay in bed or you should probably stay home. You should probably take some medication or, or, you know, eat some, eat some fruit or whatever. If you're willing to acknowledge that you need to realize that yeah. illness of the body is really in a lot of ways comparable to illness of the brain. The brain is part of a body. So you have to think yeah. of it in similar terms. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a huge challenge here is that having a negative outlook on seeking treatment has really bad outcomes, right? So an ex a, a recent review of research on specifically self-stigma, which is which refers to negative attitudes, um, including like internalized shame and um, uh, about people with mental illness, um, or that people with mental illness have about their own condition, right? They're like stigmatizing themselves for having a mental illness, leads to uh, negative effects on recovery, diagnosis, and diagnosis. So we're talking about like, you know, reduced feelings of hope, lower self-esteem, increased psychiatric symptoms, difficulties with social relationships, reduced likelihood to stay in treatment, um, and, you know, difficulties at work. So to Nathan's point about being illogical and counterproductive is that, like, the belief that your mental health is not worth addressing can come with it the belief that if you need to address your mental health, that's a problem. And with that has all of these negative outcomes on both your mental health and your life and your ability to, to, you know, enjoy it and participate in it and do well. So it's totally counterproductive. Um, but there are lots of things that can help, right? First of all, just getting yourself into treatment is a big, is a big part of it, right? Um, like trying to, that, that can help you like get out of the self shaming that can come with, you know, negative attitudes towards mental health treatment. Um, another thing you should not, you know, isolate yourself, especially not isolate yourself from, um, you know, your family or other people with mental health issues, because being around people that, you know, are like you and can have those problems can actually increase your likelihood of going to get help and the effectiveness of that help. Um, the other thing is like, you know, avoiding equating your illness with your identity. We talk about the mm -hmm. importance of identity and the separation between, you know, identity and, you know, mm -hmm. beliefs and ideology and all kinds of things. But, but you are not, you know, just depression. You're a whole person that experiences depression, you know? Um, yeah. And, and there are lots of like, you know, places to get help um, and lots of different ways to get help, like lots of formats and things like that. So like finding what works for you is key. Um, so part of the upshot of all of this, the fact that people are seeming to experience mental health issues at an increasing rate, uh, to Nathan's point, that like there have been 
you know, a few suicides in his community is the risk of something called a suicide contagion, Hmm. which is a, you know, not particularly proven out theory, but a a pattern that has been noticed by uh, psychologists and sociologists, which is that when suicide tends to affect a community, it can cause a cluster um, of knock-on kind of suicides in that community. And so there are a number of ways to like, you know, try to limit that um, to reduce the risk of suicide. But the main thing I wanted to call out here is that, you know, if you're in a community affected by suicide, if you're in a community that is, that seems to be at a higher risk of, of suicide or you're experiencing some kind of like suicidal ideation or anything like that, um, like at least one resource that you should definitely reach out to, um, which can, you know, help prevent suicide for people in distress and also their, their loved ones, um, is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, uh, which is 1-800-273-8255. All right. And so now we will start to wrap up our show. Uh, one thing that we did want to mention is that a few episodes ago in our um, Tip for Good, <clears throat> we were talking about BMI and the comparison between um, height and weight as a measure of health. We made a comparison between uh, Donald Trump and J- Dwayne The Rock Johnson talking about you know how um, their BMI could be the same, and yet one of them is way healthier than the other. Um, apparently, we've uh, gotten some feedback that um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson uses some uh, performance enhancers that could be detrimental to health down the road. So similar to, you know, a uh, kind of on point for the tip for good that we were providing is that simplistic measures of health are not always the best. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just cause Dwayne the rock Johnson is huge and lean, yeah. um, doesn't mean that he's healthy. Yeah. And you know, and some of it might actually have to do with the XX weight, even though it is muscle weight rather than, mm-hmm. you know, rather than fat, which is often what we normally think of as being unhealthy. So it's, it's yeah. definitely more complicated than, than just uh, than just a number, but uh, we do want to make sure that we're being as accurate as possible. And I mean, it definitely it definitely makes sense. I don't as much as I love Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I just <laughs> how that, does someone look like? That? Yeah, that shit can't be natural. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And so now we'll start wrapping up our show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight is that uh, this last weekend. I uh, went airsofting with an old friend of mine, mm. and I've never been airsofting before, and it was a lot of fun. That's pretty you know? fun. They were yeah. they they were super nice to to beginners. Uh, I uh, I got shot in the finger at one point, which is one <laughs> one of the few places that wasn't covered, so that kind of sucked. But overall, it was it was great. I won two of the games just because someone told me to grab a bucket and run and I grabbed the bucket and I run and a whistle blew and they say, great job. You won. I was like, Oh shit. Well. <laughs> Cause I had no idea what the hell I was doing, but apparently I won us two games. Excellent. Well done. Well done. Yeah. What about you, Michael? Uh, so my highlight is kind of perspective. It's about this coming weekend. Um, we've got a lot going on this, this season, you know, we're hanging out with family, we're traveling, we're doing all this stuff. Um, and this coming weekend is actually going to be a respite from that. We're going to be just at home, chilling out, doing some chores, relaxing. And I'm really looking forward to that quiet time. 
and so now we will thank our patrons um, that make all this show possible. So thank you to Taylor Bloom, uh, Jerry DeViller, uh, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, and Tobias Janssen. And thank you, listener, for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. Thank you.